0: All right, welcome to the Scavengeology podcast, uh, maybe episode three, I think. Um, I haven't exactly determined exactly how to say the word yet, even though I created it as far as I know. Sometimes I say scavengeology, sometimes I say scavengeology, and you know, it, it, it works both ways, and it's, it's kind of the, one of the things I like about the name is it's just one of those words that there's no right way to say it. Um, in any event. Um, thanks for tuning in. I hope you um, enjoyed the first two episodes and I'm kind of learning on how to how to incorporate this into my passion for history a little better. Um, I love to write, but I also love to talk being a trial lawyer. so um, you know the, there's lots of different topics that, that I'd like to go over and one of the things that I'm working on, and I don't know how many days I've been working on this, but every time I get some time, I record a little more, and I think I'm up to like 45 minutes so far. Is this really cool discussion on some documents I found related to the Scopes trial from the 20s, and also this other murder trial from Chicago from the same time period involving some of these great trial lawyers, and, and some really cool history in there. So I'm working on that, and it really applies to both of the podcasts I'm doing, both my legal-related one the John Bryan podcast, and also this one, the Scavengeology podcast, and so really it'll probably be an episode on both of them, but um, you know, I I think that'll probably be the best one that I've done so far. In any event, you know, one of the really cool things uh, that I researched lately was this house that I always pass by on my way going into Ohio or going up to Point Pleasant, and what is now mason county west virginia there's this really cool house off the side of the road and i did a post about it if you've ever looked at my blog and if you haven't please look at it and you can see the post on there it's it's regarding the what's called the general mccauslin house and i've always passed by this house and there is is a historical marker there but it you are flying by it and you're surrounded by semis because that's just such a busy road and you don't want to stop there's nowhere to pull over to take a picture of the place so the pictures that i did take of it that i posted on my website basically i had julie open the window and lean out and snap a picture as we're flying by but there's this really cool stone house off the side of the road <coughs> off of what's route 35 from which goes from it's in west virginia going from the the. Interstate from Interstate 64 kind of between Charleston and Huntington and then it heads up to Point Pleasant, follows the Kanawha River and that's really the route you have to go when you're going up to Ohio. And you know when we go to either Columbus or Cincinnati you know, for jiu-jitsu for my son or for whatever else, we're, we're always going down that road and it's really the only two-lane stretch that you have to go down. But there's a really interesting story behind the house, and if you speed by it, you'll see that it says General McCausland's house. And but there, it's more than just you know your typical Civil War general's house. This is where he lived, etc., etc. So this is the area of West Virginia that's almost in Ohio. I mean, it's it's what I mean, 14 miles or so from the Ohio River and from you know the. What, what is undisputedly really the north from Ohio. Now, West Virginia, technically where this house was built, and it was built after the war, this is this is really a, a state that sided with the north in that this is in West Virginia. So post-June of 1863, West Virginia became a state and it was uh, allied with the north. Um, the southern part of West Virginia really was taken involuntarily there was no vote uh, the county where I am you know they they had no idea they they were not Confederates really until halfway through the war but this is close enough to Ohio that this was always never really an area that would have sympathized very much with the South it wasn't you know there weren't really many big farms or plantations in this area this was very close to Ohio and um, you know this was always more of a northern area but here you have general McCauslin building this house here and i think it was in 1867 um, but he was this confederate general and he wasn't just any confederate general he was really the only confederate general that ever went up into the north and burned an entire city um, or a very large town, small city, whatever you want to call it. General McCausland is the guy who burnt Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And I've been to Chambersburg because I visited a friend of mine, Ernie, there, who's now passed away, but he had this great warehouse full of World War I military. And when I took, went on a field trip with my son and some of his, his friends, I took the kids by this place and got them each a World War I bayonet uh, battlefield pickup. But it's a really cool place. Anyways, Chambersburg's this nice town, and it was pretty much burnt to the ground during the Civil War by this General McCausland. So, when that happened, and he was basically a cavalry leader, uh, he was a professor at VMI along with Stonewall Jackson. He commanded a unit of VMI cadets at the execution of the John, of John Brown um, in in uh, what's now the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. And similar to Stonewall Jackson, he became this, you know, a general on horseback uh, uh, throughout the Virginia countryside, um, fighting this sort of guerrilla-type war um, along the Virginia, the the big valley of Virginia. So he got this nickname, uh, Tiger John, for his notorious raids on horseback, and he got, ended up getting promoted after uh, General Jenkins died at the Battle of Cloyd's Mountain, and he took command of the entire western Virginia and what is now West Virginia forces. And he moved north and east, eventually propelling himself essentially to infamy. He got into Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and he basically burnt that place to the ground. You can see pictures of it on the internet, just Google it. And after he burnt Chambersburg to the ground, he rejoined General Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. But he didn't surrender at Appomattox with Lee. He took off with his men, or some group of his men, and they fled to Lynchburg. And again, they were a cavalry unit, so they could move quickly. They got to Lynchburg and disbanded there on their own terms. He did get paroled in charleston in may of 1865 that does not mean he was pardoned but he got paroled which is like you get your papers and you know you you're you're able to prove that you've turned yourself in um, you're no longer fighting the war but he had a problem because the county where chambersburg is franklin pennsylvania they were pissed and they indicted him for all sorts of war crimes so he knew he had to flee and he took off. First he went to Canada, then he went to England, then he went to Scotland, and then France. And in France the story really takes a turn. He joins the French Foreign Legion and while there he he gets deployed to fight in another war. And where does he go you ask? Well he goes to Mexico because they're having a civil war in Mexico. That's the Mexican Civil War. So General McCausland, the ex-Confederate general who Burnt Chambersburg ends up in France, joins the French Foreign Legion, gets deployed. I believe that he was in Egypt for some time, but he ends up in Mexico again fighting a civil war, this time in Mexico. Um, I found this really great article from The Nation magazine from 1927, and it was titled A Hun of the Civil War. And they're writing about General McCausland, and in that they wrote, Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year when a thrill of horror went through the north as the news came that a Confederate cavalry general, one John McCausland, had led his troops into Chambersburg, Pennsylvania on the 30th of July, 1864, and burned the greater part of that town to the ground. In an hour, this inconspicuous brigadier general who, with Stonewall Jackson, had been a professor at the Virginia Military Institute prior to the war became one of the most execrated of men. He was declared an outlaw, a brigand, a violator of all the decencies of war and the laws thereof, a beast who warred on women and children. Had the word Hun been in use then, it would instantly have been applied to this destroyer of private property. It was open declared that no quarter would be granted him if he were caught, and was so nearly caught by General Averill Averill just a week later that he lost his artillery, three flags, nearly all his wagons, 420 prisoners, including 38 officers, besides about 100 killed and wounded. On January 23, 1927, he died in his sleep at the age of 90 in the West Virginia town that bears his name, the survivor of almost all those who once thirsted for his blood, and with one exception, the last of the Confederate generals. More than that, General McCausland was of the old guard who died but never surrendered. Lee might give up his sword and Early and Johnston and Pickett and all the rest, but not the destroyer of Chambersburg. There was no Appomattox for him. With numerous others he went into Mexico and began that Hegira through Europe, which for some of these irreconcilables led to Egypt, service in the Egyptian army, and almost two decades of wanderings. McCauslin's exile was cut up to two years because Ulysses S. Grant came to his rescue, declaring that Chambersburg belonged in the category of things to be forgotten and forgiven, which resulted in the quashing of the indictments for arson brought against McCauslin and General Bradley Johnson in Franklin County, Pennsylvania. General McCauslin came back, but never yielded to the Yanks. To his dying day, he boasted that he had never surrendered nor taken the oath of allegiance. If a man deserved to have the... If ever a man deserved to have the stars and bars on his coffin, it was surely the Hun of Chambersburg. And again, that was from the Nation magazine, February 9th, 1927. Of course, you would not read today anything, any even halfway praising uh, or even admiring of, of a sort of any Confederate general. I mean, the only thing that any part of the media would, would present today has to do with Confederate statues being toppled and whatnot. So, um, you know, this is from 1927. You certainly wouldn't see that today. But they're here, the writer of this article is, is just kind of, you know, he thought it at the time that it was interesting that you had this Confederate general who was unrepentant, never really surrendered, even fled to, to as far, far away as France, Egypt, and Mexico. And then he builds his house in what was what was essentially a northern occupied area, and and he never, um, you know, till his until his deathbed at the age of ninety, um, had any issues with it. So it's interesting that while basically in exile, McCausland really saw fierce fighting in Mexico while serving with the uh, Foreign Legion. And several times it's, it's known that he was received at the court of the Emperor Maximilian in Mexico. And did you know that there was an Emperor of Mexico? I don't know that I really realized that until I read that he had met at the court of the Emperor of Mexico. And there's a lot of, of holes in, in the history classes dealing with with Mexico really you know with the our war with Mexico on the southern border and with Mexico's own civil war but there's really a lot happened there and their civil war kind of coincided with ours but you know here's some of the history on that you know when the the French were involved in this and when the French forces withdrew from Mexico in late 1866 the old general remained this time supporting what was believed to be another possible Confederate cause, which was the ill-fated Confederate colony of Carlota. And you probably haven't heard of that as well. Well, Carlota, C-A-R-L-O-T-A, was known as the New Virginia Colony, which was a plan to colonize Central Mexico with ex-Confederates. And this was done with the approval of the Emperor of Mexico. And if you didn't know there was an Emperor of Mexico, I'll tell you how that came to be. The ex-rebels were going to be offered land grants there. Even though slavery would be banned, you know, sometimes you will hear that they were going to set up this confederate place in, in uh, Argentina or Mexico or wherever where they could continue with slavery. And that's not true. They were, they were recruiting confederates in, to places in Central or South America to, re, to uh, you know, attract them as, as colonizers, but it wasn't for slavery, because you know, slavery was gone at that point. I mean, the slaves were, 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 they wouldn't be cunning with the ex-Confederate generals. I mean, they may have been in the north, or they were off doing other things. So there was no slavery to continue at that point. So Mexico is in its own civil war, and the other side ended up winning. And what happened was um, the settlers of Carlota, whatever ones they did have, they managed to get there, had to flee again. So they were all gone by 1867. So it never really did, they called them the Confederados, and it never really did come to fruition. So why were the French in Mexico to begin with? Why were the French fighting there? Well, in 1857, Mexico, began its own civil war at about the same time as ours the united states and other european powers supported the side that they thought was going to win and that was the quote mexican government and their support that they lent to the mexican government was was money they lent them money and things spiraled out of control because the mexican government the mexicans stopped paying on the debt and halloween of 1861 the spanish the french the british they agreed to intervene in Mexico, but the main, thing, the main reason that they wanted to do that was to recover their money. So they actually landed troops in Veracruz on December 8th of 1861. The United States was obviously busy at this time, but other nations such as France were not. As would be the case during the succeeding century, with the Europeans attempting to colonize and micromanage all these third world countries, it did not go well the natural reaction was for Napoleon III, Napoleon Third, to invite this guy, Maximilian, who was Archduke of Austria, to become the new Emperor of Mexico. I mean, makes sense, right? So, I mean, that that's, isn't that part of the reason that America exists, that the American dream exists, and that we wanted to get away from the way things worked in Europe. And this is, this just goes to show how things worked in Europe. I mean, so they need, obviously, Mexico needs an emperor, right? And so we need to pick someone who who we know and who has the royal credentials. So hey, let's pick the Archduke of Austria, uh, Maximilian. Well, he's a natural choice. I'm sure he speaks Spanish. So Maximilian becomes the new Emperor of Mexico. An obvious choice, like I said. So, things went predictably, and, and it would be up to the U.S. basically to fix the mess once they resolved their own civil war, and which eventually happened. So, the French withdrew in 1866. They had failed. The United States subsequently intervened, and at that point, we, as we, you know, we kind of set an early policy of warning Europe stay out of our affairs so we warned Austria not to send additional troops to assist the Emperor of Mexico and without the support of the Europeans at that point or his native Austria or even the United States um, they went things went very poorly for the uh, Emperor he was captured he was court-martialed and then he was executed and one interesting side note is is that he actually had a chance to escape execution Somebody had come up with an ingenious escape plan at the last moment and it may have saved his life But there was a deal killer involved in the plan and that is in order to escape He had to cut his mustache and if you look at any of the pictures of the Emperor of Mexico He had some great uh, He had a great mustache basically or he had to shave his beard and he had quite the beard as as kind of was the style around 1870 or so, um, he had a great beard. So he did not want to shave his beard. That would have been basically unacceptable. Death was preferable. So he had some great dedication to his beard, that's for sure. Um, After General Grant quashed those indictments in Pennsylvania, General McCausland was able to come back. So he, he first settled in Henderson, West Virginia, and that is directly across the Kanawha River from Point Pleasant. So still on West Virginia, still on the West Virginia side of the Ohio, but it's directly across the mouth of the Kanawha from Point Pleasant. And he had really a type A personality, and he was going to focus on farming rather than war. But he, I mean, he was going to do a hell of a job at farming. I mean, if he's going to farm, he's going to farm. And if he's going to build a house he's going to build a hell of a house i mean he's not going to build a house out of wood he's going to build a damn stone house with a turret on the top and that's what he did and it's still there today so he built a stone house on the south side of the canal river and there he installed the first telephone system that was in the lower Kanawha valley and he did so in order to link various parts of his farm so that communication would improve so he's farming like he's carrying out a war I mean, he's still the general, but he's the general of the farm. So how did he, what was his connection to this area, and how did he end up there? Because he was from St. Louis originally, Missouri. He was the son of Irish immigrants, and he was, he was an orphan. He and his brother were orphaned. They went and lived with their aunt, uh, Jane Smith, who lived in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And he kind of halfway grew up there, and that's how he ended up there. He returned there uh, once, he, once the coast was clear after the Civil War. And uh, so he kind of grew up there until he moved to uh, VMI, where he became a professor. And then he did that until the war broke out. So at the time he was building this house, it was a huge house made of stone. And there were all these rumors that it was being built with this gold hoard that he must have he kept from Chambersburg. And then he was building it as a fortress. It was 18-inch thick, full of stone blocks, and had a turret on top and the turret was for him to watch for you know some yankee group of vigilante, vigilante's coming to burn him out and kill him but really i think the the truth is, is the turret was probably put there for light and ventilation of this big stone house and it didn't really cost that much to build back then because um the records show that that the, the stone was quarried locally and that he had hired this black teamster with oxen for 50 cents a day uh and that's all he paid for labor because you know you have all these freedmen now who are joining the free market and hell 50 cents a day he probably was very happy with that and it was a very cheap source of labor for mccausland so uh you know he lived there uh he got married in 1878 he had four kids and he eventually li- lived there and won the respect of his community and and had a great reputation there he lived to be what 91 years old and uh and the house is still there though it's been under restoration for a while but it does look pretty good um on my website i posted on the uh, blog post i did i found pictures of McCoslin's uniform i posted pictures of that i found a letter that he had written from princeton talking about executing deserters it was pretty cool there's also an interesting story and I found the newspaper clipping for it where his son got into a fight with a World War I Medal of Honor recipient who was a farmhand on the farm and this was after the general died and apparently they had gotten into a fight over the general's gun and um, I'm not sure if he had maybe given it to the farmhand and the son was jealous or whatever happened but to make a long story short With that gun the general's son shot to death this world war one hero and he ended up getting charged with murder and was found guilty of murder for murdering this guy with the general's gun so um, eventually this grave the the hero his name was chester west his grave ended up being lost to history and it was recently rediscovered and what was really an isolated cemetery up in the hills and it eventually became a a wildlife uh, preserve called chief cornstalk wildlife preserve and this there's a lot of interesting stuff on this if you google it the family was uh, families were fighting over this and there was litigation before the west virginia supreme court in any event if you're ever driving on route us uh, 35 um, between you know charleston west virginia and point pleasant look off to the left when you see the historical marker and you'll see this beautiful stone house that's still there and that's the general mccauslin house and that is really the story behind it and it's really an interesting story and i appreciate you listening and hope hopefully soon i can finish this other really longer more detailed podcast that i'm working on having to do with these two historic trials and uh In any event, I appreciate you listening, and uh, also check out um, my other podcast, the John Bryan uh, podcast that has to do with law and life as a trial lawyer, uh, legal issues, things of that nature, and uh, if you need to contact me, my website's johnbryanlaw.com, it has my contact there. The, the history site um, is scavengeology.com. That's S-C-A-V-E-N-G-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Basically the word scavenge and then ology added to the end of it. Um, and again, I, I appreciate you listen, listening and I'll talk to you next time.